week's reading comes from 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not, what, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one that who gathered too little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Having a father who loves you is a privilege that not everyone enjoys and being a father is one of life's great privileges. So um, take some time today to thank God for the gift of fatherhood and of fathers. You know by now that we are working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be spending probably 20 weeks uh, tracking through each verse of this book and uh, the next three sermons are part of a I guess a kind of a mini-series within that series uh, where we're going to focus on money and giving and generosity and stewardship. And that's because that's what Paul focuses on in chapters 8 and 9. And you might be there kind of thinking to yourself or asking the question, why is the church always talking about money? And this is definitely a question that people from outside of the church ask a lot, like what why is the church so obsessed with money? You know, images of televangelists asking you to give and give and give so that they might get rich themselves come to mind. And you might be asking yourself, you know, is the, is the church just out to get my money? And the obvious answer to that question is, yes. Yes, we are. Uh, so please give more money. See you next week. I'm jokes, jokes, jokes. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously kidding. The truth is that I hate talking about money. And most of the pastors I know hate talking about money. 
They often, when they do talk about it, they're walking on eggshells, actually not unlike Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He is clearly tiptoeing around this subject. You you know that because he spends two chapters talking about money without once using any of the Greek words for money. And it's probably because relations between him and the church are tense. Uh, You know, the the relationship is threatening to break down on account of these super apostles and the church turning away from Paul and all the stuff that we've been talking about over the last couple of months. And so he is tiptoeing around the subject. But the truth is that the reason we talk about money and that Paul talks about money here is because actually money, stewardship, the the, the, the giving of our resources, generosity, is the, all these things are central to Christian discipleship. And they're central to Christian discipleship because Jesus made it that way. Jesus set the example by speaking about money a lot in his teaching. And as followers of Jesus, we want to follow his example. One of the <clears throat> most interesting um, uh, interactions that Jesus has in his ministry, which at its foundation has this topic of money and generosity, is Jesus' interaction with a guy named Zacchaeus. So you find this in in Luke's gospel, and uh, in this passage in in Luke 19, you find what scholars call the absolute hinge verse of the book of Luke, like the, the climax of the book. And it's in this interaction that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is one of the most hated men in Jerusalem. And the reason for that is that he is a tax collector. So at this time, Jerusalem is occupied by the Roman Empire. They have come in and just subjugated the whole region. And one of the the geniuses of the Roman Empire is that they don't just go in and destroy everything when they take a city, but rather they leave people there so that they can then leverage taxes from them. And so they don't just get the land, but they get rich in doing it. And so... Uh, as a tax collector, this guy Zacchaeus, who was a Jew, would be seen by the other Jews as an absolute traitor to the people of Israel. He is sided with the Romans. He is working for them and leveraging taxes from God's people. And he's not just doing that. As a tax collector, he's probably doing it by essentially extorting money from the people of Israel, like taking way more than he needs to take so that he can line his own pockets. Now, the people of Israel saw this not just as a political, um, uh, that Zacchaeus wasn't just a political trader, but that he was a religious trader, first and foremost. He wasn't just an enemy of the people of Israel, but an enemy of God himself. That's the way they viewed him. And so you get this, this interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus uh, as Jesus, Luke says, he turns his face towards Jerusalem. He's on his way now to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be crucified. Right? He's going to die. He's literally a dead man walking on his way to his final destination. And as he approaches Jericho on the way to that final destination, on the way to the cross... This crowd is gathered around him, following him around. He's become kind of like the talk of the town now. 
through his ministry of teaching and miracles and 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 Zacchaeus has obviously heard of him and Zacchaeus is somehow attracted to him he's drawn to him the problem for Zacchaeus is that he's a small man and so he can't get to see Jesus he can't see through the crowds and so he decides to go and climb a sycamore tree so that he can sit in the tree and see Jesus come by now the interesting thing here is that Jesus identifies Zacchaeus looks him in the eye and says you better get your house ready I'm coming around to stay he invites himself round to Zacchaeus's house he says we need to meet we need to chat we've got an appointment and so much in keeping with the hospitality expectations of his time, Zacchaeus invites Jesus in. Likely Jesus would have stayed the night with him. And then we'll pick up the narrative in verse 7 of Luke 19. All who saw this began to complain. He, Jesus has gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. And here comes the, here's the hinge verse, the climax verse of the whole gospel. Verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And the whole point of that interaction, Luke's point in telling us that story, is to show us that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves, and and saved sinners change. When you get saved by the Son of Man, you don't remain the same. Your life is never the same after that. Things change, often dramatically. And for Zacchaeus, the mark of that change is his attitude towards money, his behavior around money. He says, right, he says, if I've extorted anyone, I'm going to pay them back four times. Half of everything that I've, you know, piled up over the years of extorting people, I'm going to give to the poor. That is the mark of his, the genuineness of his conversion. He's been given a new heart. He's been, as Jesus says, born again. Now, R. Kent Hughes is a, a Bible scholar, he's written a commentary on 2 Corinthians. And in that commentary, he makes mention of this passage in Luke's gospel, this interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And, and this is what he says. It's shocking, but true. He says, authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. If our professed salvation has not loosed our grip on material things so that we have become giving people, we are not saved despite our protestations. That is a huge call. But it seems to be in keeping 
with what we learn about salvation and money in the New Testament. What we see in Jesus' ministry and specifically in the example here of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has been born again and there is a corresponding dramatic shift in his attitude towards his use of money. Now, the famous theologian and pastor John Wesley famously said that the last thing to be converted is a man's wallet. And yeah, that might be true. It's not true for Zacchaeus. There is an instant change in how he views money. It might be more true in your experience. It certainly seems to be true in the case of the Corinthians. So let's turn to our passage now today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're looking at verse 1 to 15. And here Paul is going to reveal a little bit to us about the Corinthians and their attitude towards generosity and giving. Now the context for this passage is that uh, Paul has asked the church in Corinth to set aside a collection of money for the relief of the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. You can read about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 16. This is where uh, in the letter before the one that we have, Paul says to them, you know, I'm planning on coming to visit you. Make sure you take up this collection now so that when I come, I can just grab it and either send it with someone who's taking letters to Jerusalem, or if I can, I'll, I'll take it myself. And, and this money is to go straight to the relief of the poor brothers and sisters, the, the poor church in Jerusalem. Now, it seems like what happened was, after he wrote that to them, 1 Corinthians 16, it seems like they responded really positively. They started taking up a collection um, they were you know, doing a good job of, of, of gathering money in Corinth, which was famously a wealthy city. We don't know how wealthy the church was, but if it's in keeping with the, the local demographics, probably fairly well off, certainly better off than the, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were dirt poor. And um, so they started, the, the, started the, the giving project well, but then they seem to have given up somewhere along the way. We, we kind of get the idea that this is the case from verse 10 and 11 of our passage. It says, Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. It's Father's Day, so you know I, I'm willing to bet that just about Everyone who's a father can relate to this dynamic, right? The eagerness to do it is not always matched by the willingness to complete it. Just look at every do-it-yourself project you've got running now, uh, particularly the ones you started in the late 1990s. All right, so th this is the, 
This is the case with the Corinthian church. They started out well, they faltered. Now Paul's planning to come and take, collect this money and he wants them to complete it. And so what he does in this passage is, is he's seeking to encourage them to, towards generosity. He's seeking to encourage them to take up this work and to do it joyfully, to do it cheerfully, as he'll say uh, in chapter 9. So he encourages them to, to, to pursue generosity, and he does it primarily through the use of two examples, two examples of sacrificial generosity. The first example is in verse 1 to 2 of our passage. It says, he says to them, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So this is the first example, the example of the Macedonian church. And he's saying, you know, these, these poor destitute Christians in Jerusalem have been greatly blessed by the poor destitute Christians in Macedonia in their joyful willingness to give what they have, even more than what they have, for the sake of their poor brothers and sisters. And this reveals this, this strange dynamic. You might have come across it in your own life. This strange economic reality that it seems like those who are poor have an easier time being generous than those who are rich, which is totally counterintuitive. You would think that people who have heaps would be willing to give from what they have, but it seems like actually the reverse is true. And certainly it's true in our case today in this passage. I remember in 2008, Renee and I, before we had kids, we we spent five weeks traveling uh, an overland trip uh, through Southern Africa. And this was absolutely our experience everywhere we went. Wherever we came across poor, destitute people, people living in slums, people living in cardboard houses, right? They were the most generous people. They were the people who were most likely to express gratitude and thanksgiving to God for what they had, which happened everywhere we went and then have a very open-handed policy with what they shared with us, rich Western travellers. Strange dynamic. And Paul says, actually, the motivating force for this strange dynamic, the motivating force behind these poor Macedonians being willing to share with their poor brothers and sisters is actually the grace of God. Did you see that? So in... Verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. It was the grace of God given to them which enabled them to be gracious to those poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's the grace of God. And he identifies the the kind of manifestation of this grace in verse 3 and 4. He says, I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us 
earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. This is incredible stuff. Just, just let's just summarize, right? Abundant joy partnered with extreme poverty. That's crazy from the from the outset, right? Abundant joy, extreme poverty overflows in a wealth of generosity. And the way that the, the grace of God is manifest in their experience is that they, even in that situation, begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the poor. This is what the grace of God does. It makes you do crazy things. It makes Zacchaeus give up all of his wealth, blessing the poor around him and paying back not just what he owes, but four times what he owes. It makes the Macedonian Christians in their poverty beg Paul, please let us give more for the sake of our brothers and sisters. The grace of God will make you do crazy things. You need to know this first, especially those of you who are watching who aren't yet Christians. You need to know this from the outset. The grace of God will make you do crazy stuff. Now, usually when we think about the grace of God making people do crazy stuff, we're thinking about, you know, the kind of crazy things that the Corinthian church were doing, like, I mean, like crazy things like speaking in tongues and prophesying and, you know, these super spiritual experiences. I would say this is far more crazy. Forget speaking in tongues, giving, earnestly begging for the privilege of giving to people who are in the same situation you're in, dirt poor. That's crazy. And that's what the grace of God does. It makes you do crazy things. I've seen it over and over again in our church at Red Door over the years. People doing crazy things because of the grace of God. The second example that he gives them, first of all, the Macedonian Christians. The second example is even more powerful. It's an even greater, in fact, the greatest example of sacrificial giving that Paul could possibly give them. And it's the example of Jesus himself. So verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the greatest act of sacrificial giving, of generosity that the world has ever seen. And Paul is giving us here a kind of another version of the great exchange. Remember that the great exchange that he mentioned back in, in chapter 5, verse 21, he said, God made the one, that's Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So perfect sinless Jesus takes on our sins, dies the death that we should have died, and in exchange he gives us his perfect righteousness, forgiveness of sins. That's the first great exchange. Paul has just kind of restated it here with reference to generosity. Right? He said, let's read it again, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
Jesus leaves his kingdom to become a slave so that we slaves might inherit his kingdom. What an example. What an example of sacrificial giving for the sake of those less fortunate than us. It's the grace of God that motivates gospel-centered giving. In both the case of the Macedonians and the case of Jesus himself, it's, it's the grace of God that motivates gospel-centered giving. I love the way that Graham Bainan puts it. He says, All that we do flows out of what God has done for us. We see his love towards us, so we love others. We experience his forgiveness, and so we forgive others. We see his patience with us, and are patient with others. So likewise, we see his generosity to us, and we are generous in giving to others. Now, Paul wants the Corinthian church to be really clear about this. It's the grace of God that motivates gospel-centered giving. But it's true that since that time, since pretty much ever since Paul wrote those words, the church has got this wrong. And you could just run 2,000 years of church history where we have got it wrong when it comes to money, and particularly when it comes to getting people to give for the sake of the ministry. You can, I mean, just run the highlights. You think about the Middle Ages, churches wanting to build cathedrals and so funding them by this, what was called doctrine of indulgences where the church would you know in exchange for you giving the money would give your relatives time off in purgatory or 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 reduced suffering in hell right and so they would through this absolute spiritual abuse would leverage money out of people uh, so that they could do their building projects and while we may not have done things that badly we have done things badly when it comes to this i remember when uh i would distance this story from the one about selling indulgences but um i remember in 2016 i preached a sermon series called mola uh and it was three weeks on money and giving and stewardship and um and I remember that was in February of 2016. I remember at the end of that church financial year, looking back on the year's giving and in um, March and April of that year, the giving, congregational giving doubled. I mean, it, it literally doubled in the two months after that sermon series. And then after those two months, it went back down to just under average giving. Now that is an illustration of what can happen when we really uh, try and elicit stronger giving from people, but where there is a, a, a behavioral response rather than a heart response, right? We can, we, we can very easily manipulate people's behavior so that they're better givers, but unless there is a heart change, unless there's a Zacchaeus-like, Macedonian-like heart change, then it's all for nothing, 
God is really clear about this in both Old and New Testaments. As far as God's concerned, you can today drop 10 grand into the church's bank account and it can mean nothing to God if it doesn't come from a, a place of a heart-motivated generosity. Our giving, our acts of generosity, and I don't just mean giving money to church, it's way bigger than that, but our generosity towards others is, it, it, it's, it reveals something about the state of our heart. Our giving, our generosity to others reveals something about the genuineness of our love for God and for creatures made in his image. Now Paul says as much in verse 7 and 8. This is the way he says it. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command, Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. So for Paul, their attitude to giving and particularly their ability to finish this task of gathering money for the sake of the poor, this is a test of their love. It's a test that reveals the genuineness of their love. It's not a pop quiz. It's not a gotcha. It's just this, he's saying, this is, this, this is a test that reveals. This is a litmus test, right? Reveals the genuineness of your love. Now, this is really important for the Corinthian church because in so many ways, they're killing it. Right? They are, in so many ways, they are a successful church. They have, perhaps better than any other church, comprehended Christian theology and mastered it. They are exercising gifts of the Spirit left, right, and center. You see this particularly picked up in 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 12 and 13. Paul talks about this. But he says, yeah. You guys are doing great as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, all diligence, in your love for us, right? They're excelling. They're excellent in so many ways. In so many ways, they're successful. They would be able to answer. You remember Jimmy, Jimmy last, in last week's sermon, he asked a really good question. This is what he said. How would we answer the question, what makes a successful Christian living? Now, the, the Corinthians would be able to answer that question out of their own experience really thoroughly, right? In all these things that Paul has mentioned, they are excelling, they are successful. But Paul sees in their behavior that there's a, there's a defect, or there might be a defect, that their unwillingness to complete this collection is evidence of a lack of love. It reminds me actually of 
another famous interaction that Jesus has in Luke's gospel. It actually comes just before the one that we read with Zacchaeus, just in the chapter before, in chapter 18 and verse 18. This is an interaction Jesus has with another man. It's, it goes like this. A ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told them, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Something similar is going on here with the Corinthians, and Paul wants them to show him that they're not like that rich young ruler. He wants them to complete the collection because it reveals their heart. It reveals something about the genuineness of their love. Friends, the same is true for us. It really is. And while I don't claim to have the kind of insight that Jesus had with that rich young ruler or even the insight that Paul had with the church in Corinth, I do know that is true for us as well. That principle is true. Our willingness to be generous to those around us reveals something about the state of our heart towards God and man. It reveals something about the genuineness of our love. Now, there's a final word here. Final word to those of us who have money to spare. To those of us who have surplus resources. I know that at this time, uh, we, the, the crisis that we're going through at the moment uh, is, is causing a lot of us uh, to have to tighten our belts financially. Uh, some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have, have lost value in assets. You know, times are uncertain. All of that is true. Others of us are doing just fine. Uh, and most of us have money to spare. And so I speak to most of us when I read this last three verses. Verse 13 to 15 says this. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Quoting from Exodus 16 about God's provision for the people of Israel. 
And here Paul is giving us a very basic principle, right? He's saying, listen, if you've got surplus, there's a reason you've got surplus. That's not an accident. And God forbid you think it's all down to your personal genius or industry. Paul says, if you have surplus, the surplus exists so that you can bless others. He's saying, I'm not asking you to give so that you're poor and they're rich. He just identifies some of us have more and he says, God has given you that so that you might bless others. The evidence of God's grace in your life would be a levying of that surplus, that fat on top for the sake of those who have little. And you, you heard last week we announced a, the launching of a new ministry in our church, the, the Red Door Relief Fund, and this would be a great opportunity for you to take some of that surplus and to give it to those in need by, by way of uh, the, the relief fund. It exists for this purpose. This, this fund, this passage seems to be written for, ju- for just this purpose that the surplus of some might meet, meet the needs of others. So I encourage you, you should have got an email about that this week and I encourage you to get involved and to give generously to that ministry. If you are at this point in a situation where you don't have anything to give, you do not have surplus, then Paul would say to you, you are not to be the giver but the recipient. Now, we do have examples like the, the widow that Jesus speaks of putting in the last coins into the, the temple treasury. We have the example of the Macedonians who gave beyond their capacity to give, but these are not necessarily examples for us to follow. Paul's saying, it's those of you who have that are called on to give. So I encourage you to do that. This is what John Calvin said of this passage commenting on this these last couple of verses he says thus those who have riches whether inherited or won by their own industry or labor are to remember that what is left over is meant not for intemperance or luxury but for leaving the needs of the brethren i commend it to you this ministry of grace. This passage has been all about grace. It's been all about the grace of God which motivates gospel-centered giving. That's going to be the theme for the next two sermons as well, so I encourage you to come back and join us for those messages. But until then, I'd love to speak some words of grace over us at the last couple of verses of this book that we're studying Paul shares this blessing of grace I encourage you to say it uh, over our church with me in chapter 13 verse 13 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all amen